You are listening to the sermon stream of the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com sermons. Good morning. Good to see you on this lovely spring day. I guess maybe that gopher, that groundhog or gopher, whatever it was, he's about half right. He had about three more weeks of terrible winter and we've had then also some early spring. Today we'll be in John chapter 2 again. We're in the second half of the chapter, the lesser known half of the chapter. As John takes us on our guided tour of faith, this is one of those ones where after the excitement and prominence of the prior stop, I think maybe people aren't paying so much attention here when we get to this one. Everybody knows, especially all the drunks, They all know the water to wine story. We just don't get quite as excited about the first temple cleansing. And maybe that's partly marketing. I mean, how exciting does first temple cleansing sound? The very fact that it's the first one means, well, what's there going to be? There's going to be another, you know. And we approach this sometimes with all the excitement of getting to read the maid's to-do list. Because how exciting is cleaning? Especially if it's repeated. Yeah. But this rather boring title ends up describing one of the most heart-racing, angry yelling, people complaining, animals and annoyed people running for the exits, furniture and other things being tossed about, including money being thrown, and a mad scramble in the house of God. And so there's a lot going on here. And, oh yeah, that's the other story in the chapter with the water to wine. What we find here is a real indication of Jesus's passion and priorities and a strong hint of a lot of other great things going on around this brief but uh, also direct and colorful description of a bitter conflict. Let's read John 2 verses 13 to 25. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. Oh man, the accounts are going to go nuts with that. He poured out their coins and he overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, he said, take those things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple. And you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of, his, of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, 
for he himself knew what was in man. Again, this our guided her to belief. This incident helps the disciples years later to believe even more than they did. And there were things going on even at this time that were causing others to believe. So here are two more of our 98 times, literally we've counted it, that some form of the word belief is used in the Gospel of John. So Jesus went to worship and at the Passover, we're thankful that John mentions the Passover. This is the first Passover mentioned. He'll mention three more as well. So we have a little bit of ministry before uh, a Passover and then four. And so that's uh, three total years in the time inclusive between the four Passovers plus a little bit before. It's from that we date the ministry of Jesus. That's three and a half years. And so he went to worship at the Passover and he found the people being cheated in the guise of religion and he makes a forceful response. Maybe you've seen this meme. If someone asks, what would Jesus do? Remind them that overturning tables and breaking out whips is a possibility. Or this. What would Jesus do? He made a whip. There is some humor in that. There's also people who are troubled by this. There's uh, people who say that uh, Jesus is unworthy of following. I don't think they want to believe anyway a lot of times. And I don't think they fully understand what's going on here. But is this rude? Is this overbearing? Is this too much? But if you're the Messiah, come to call people to repentance and lead them to, to salvation from their sin. And you find that the worshipers who show up in God's house are being exploited and are being mistreated and misused. What would a legitimate reaction be? Now, sometimes people get upset that people get angry about things. People get a little bit worked up. Uh, there's sometimes if you don't get worked up, you're, you're not human or you're not caring one or the other. I don't know which. There's some things to get worked up about. Sometimes when we're on the receiving end of getting worked up, we're not appreciative of it. And we do have to be careful with getting ourselves worked up because uh, as frail humans and uh, sometimes not understanding all things and our own ignorance, we can misdirect our energies when we get all riled up. But I don't think Jesus did. And so we need to exercise care if we were going to pull a Jesus on this one. But... If the Son of God, if the Messiah came to earth and never did this to anybody at any time, what would we think of that? There are some things that are objectionable in this world, and those need to be objected to. So what we find, and we'll look at the first heading of the first half of this, we'll put it under the heading of exploitation and passion. The problem started with some bad business in God's house. It wasn't just that it was business in God's house. I think that would have been a front enough. But I think, as we know from the histories, this was some bad business. So again, Jesus goes to the Passover in verse 14. It says, He found in the temple they were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers at their temple. So they were doing all kind of various businesses, official business. And by that, I mean the kind of thing that's a licensed and approved uh, concessionaires. These would have been the same kind of people who love those signs that say, no outside food or drink. And if you ever see a sign that says no outside food or drink, what do you know about the food and drink on the inside? And so th this is the same spirit of people who will charge $3 for a bottle of water and $4 for a bottle of soda because it's behind an airport security gate. 
This is the kind of attitude that will charge $4 for the water and 6 for the soda if it's in an amusement park. And it'll be 6 for the soda and 8, uh, you know, 6 and 8 for that uh, if it is at a professional sports arena. And, you know, you know me, so I don't even price the beer. But it, it, it's rapacious. And this is what's happening here. A captive audience and people who are selling at the venue who are funneling some of the profits back to the people who run the venue. That's why this get along, that's why this is done and enforced by the local security. They did this with the sacrifices and they did this with the money. If you wanted to make sure your sacrifice passed the priestly inspection, because you know Malachi said, we're not bringing the lame, we're not bringing the blind, we're not bringing the calls of the flock in here, we're bringing the best of the flock. If you want to make sure your animal passed the sacrifice, what's the best way to do it? Buy it from the priest brother-in-law. Buy it from the priest buddy. Buy it from the official licensed priestly vendor. Now, certainly, the Jews who came from all over the world, or maybe even just from far Galilee, they wouldn't always want to bring all their animals with them. Now, sometimes they would, right? Pilate, when he killed some, he mingled their blood with their sacrifices. There are definitely, though, people who need to buy animals for sacrifice when they get there, but these folks made sure often they needed to buy them and buy them from the guys whom they were profiting from. And the money changing was just an absolute thievery, just an absolute racket. They told the people, we have records at this time, that they wanted to give offerings to the treasury. It needed to be in Jewish money, not that corrupt Roman money. So people would change it for you. Why do you need to worry about the currency exchange in the temple? So you had the right kind of money to drop in. Now that Roman money was fine for the money changer because what's he going to go do with it? <laughs> go make his house payment. Probably a nice house it is. But what about you trying to give money to the Lord? You're going to end up having to give a bit to him along the way. And so these temple officials were not just doing business, but bad business and exploitative business. And fleecing people is not new. And unfortunately, fleecing people in the name of religion is not new. But when you do it in the name of God like these people, it is a special affront. Remember the first command, don't take the Lord's name in vain. How about when you say, this is God's approved money changer. <laughs> Get your God approved money here. Get your required priestly donations and sacrifices here. And so we think about all of the commercial profit done today in the name of religion and religious establishments. And these people had done that in the ancient time, setting up shop right there in the temple. Well, here comes Jesus with a great passion for purity. He sees this, and almost it seems without warning, John gives us no record of one, he makes a scourge of cords. First time he's recorded as an adult going to the temple, what's he doing? He's running out the corruption. He drove them all out. With the sheep, with the oxen. Again, this, this story gets way undersold. Imagine the yelling. Imagine the chaos. Imagine all the little helper boys uh, who are there uh, with their dads or there with a part-time job with the animals. And suddenly, one of these prophets of God is whipping around them and snapping his whip. And they and the animals are running for the exits. And not just them, but the old men. And have you ever seen uh, money-changing tables without security nearby? Jesus runs off the money changers, he overthrows their tables, and whatever security and strong arms they had around, they're ineffective, and out they go, 
with the sellers of the doves to stop making my father's house a place of business. We call this the first temple cleansing because Matthew and Mark record uh, exactly three years later, almost to the day, that Jesus, when he came to Jerusalem, Mark eleven fifteen. it's also Matthew 21 and verse 12, Mark eleven fifteen. they came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of money, of the money changers and the seats of those selling doves. He would not permit anyone to carry merchandise to the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? Quoting Isaiah 56, but you have made it a robber's den. Paraphrasing Jeremiah. And so <coughs> here we find Jesus in his great passion for purity, twice doing this. He only goes to Jerusalem in his ministry four times. Half the time he's there, what does he do? He runs them out. And we have to think that uh, maybe these, as the rhetoric got stronger the second time, maybe these people have gotten worse, or, or maybe they, because they had shown themselves irrepentant. But Jesus is restoring the temple for the practices that it was built for. And if you went along with this kind of corruption, will that help you to believe or not? Again, some people object to this. They say, oh, it's too much. Shouldn't have done that. Well, John's telling you this so you can believe. Would you rather believe in one who lets this go or who goes and objects and goes and does something about it? And then it says, and it's a telling statement, the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house shall consume me. That's from the Psalms. That's Psalm 69. Psalm 69 has five or six messianic elements in it. This is one. It's also the place where we find about gall for food and vinegar to drink, speaking about the crucifixion. Psalm 69 is for uh, those who understand the work of Jesus, uh, an obviously messianic psalm. I don't know if they had perceived it as messianic before the Messiah came or not, but afterwards, it's certainly clear in hindsight. But it says that the disciples remembered what was written. It almost seems like they remember it right while this is happening. Usually, the disciples remembering or understanding, realizing that this fulfills prophecy, usually that's after the fact. As it will state in the verses to come, that, well, we didn't get this one for years. It seems like they understood this one right on the spot. And I think it, in, that at one time, in one way is unique, but in another way, I think if we think about it, probably shouldn't be as unique as we sometimes think about it, because what was their songbook? The Psalms. And here's a line of a song that obviously applies to the situation. And, and think about the songbook that you have in your head. Unfortunately, mine's 70s outlaw country music. But uh, uh, there are so many times where a line from a song uh, comes in and gets remembered at an apropos uh, moment. Uh, maybe Merle Haggard, because I one time worshiped with uh, Merle's cousin. And she often after church would talk about Merle and uh, Merle's mama, which Merle also sang about his mama a lot too. Uh, but her, Merle's mama was her aunt. And, and she would talk about uh, the sadness they had in the family over the way that the, one of the most successful country singers in history turned out because why? Well, as Merle said, mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied. I got only me to blame because mama tried. And that one comes up in my head. Don't ask me when. But that one comes up. 
And other songs, you know, Johnny Paycheck, take this job. No, never mind that one. Um, if I Die Young, maybe some of those lyrics. But there's lyrics of these songs that pop into my head. And sometimes lyrics from the hymn book pop into my head. And they apply to what I'm doing. And they, or they apply to what I'm seeing. And it seems that the apostles, the disciples with Jesus, this is one of the first times it clicks. And I think maybe that's why John brings it up. It clicks to them that this is prophecy. And I don't think they quite at this point got where it's all headed because we know they didn't. But they are seeing that what Jesus is doing is part of God's greater plan, right? And so this piece of this song that they know, this, this comes to their mind. Now, the fact that this would come to mind to the of disciples would probably have been no surprise to his parents because the last time it's recorded he was at this place, which was when he was 12 years old. So that makes it, well, he's, he's 30 now, so uh, 18 years before. 18 years ago when he was there with his parents, what was it that he said to his parents? He said, what are you doing looking all over town for me? Did you not know I had to be about my father's house? This house, this place had a special place in Jesus's heart. It was a special concern for him, the temple of God. And he goes there first time in his ministry and he sees this exploitation. And exploitation is one of the most contrary to all Christian of activities. And our Savior does something about it. All right, so now we're going to have a discussion with this and about this and where does this lead. So we're going to go into this heading. Authority and prophecy. Authority and prophecy. So the Jews come up and they say to him, the first of what's going to be a famous question particularly from Matthew's gospel where it comes up five or six times. They're going to say, what sign? The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? We do want to pause and note one thing here in John, uh, in John's usage of language. And it's an unfair criticism, but one that uh, uh, modern folks have often brought up. It's often claimed uh, by uh, theological liberals, post-Christians, and some Jews that the New Testament and the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of John, is anti-Semitic. It speaks against the Jews in unfair ways. Because John will say over and over that the Jews did this and the Jews did that. But what we want to note is when John says, and John's peculiar and it is common, it's common in John, and rather peculiar to him, he will say repeatedly that the Jews did a thing. And whenever that happens, it's always talking about Jewish leadership. He's not talking about Jewish people in general. And he certainly would not, uh, as some uh, wrongly would use Christianity uh, in pogroms and in persecutions of the Jews to say all Jews of all time are responsible for what the Jews did back here. Uh, that's, that's been done, and it's sad and it's wrong. But when John says the Jews, he's referring to the Jewish leadership. John does not mean all the Jewish people, because if you look around the temple that day when Jesus drove these folks out, what nationality was every single person involved? They were all Jews. Oh, Jesus, the disciples, the money changers, uh, the audience, the people fleecing, the people getting fleeced, uh, uh, the people questioning about this, it's, it's all Jews all the way down, right? There's nobody but. 
In the Gospel of John, uh, the only time non-Jews show up is a couple of times we're going to deal with Samaritans. we got that story coming up, the woman at the well. And we may have a little cameo appearance by some Greeks who want to see Jesus right near the end. But uh, uh, basically, it's just all Jews all the time, except a few times when it's specified. And so when he says the Jews, he means the leadership. So who is responsible for the death and killing of Jesus? The Jewish leadership who did it. Does that mean the next generation is responsible? Or how about 15 or 18 or 20 generations after that? No, no. And so uh, we, when we see uh, that statement, uh, the Jews did this or the Jews did that, that John will always be talking about uh, the leadership. So we'll put this disclaimer here at the beginning of the study of John, and we won't deal with it every time. So here come the leaders now. They say, what sign do you show us as your authority. So what gives you the right, buddy? We told those guys they could be here. You know, we're, we licensed them. Uh, uh, you know, we're, 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 we got an interest in what they're doing here. We certainly approved them to be here. Those guys are here, uh, you know, in the temple courtyard because the priests are in favor of it. The priests are profiting from it. And so, buddy, what lets you run those guys out when we said they could stay? And they ask him particularly for what sign. Now, we've already made note, as, as John would later state about uh, John the Baptist, John the Baptist didn't do any signs. But Jesus was known from first to the last to doing signs. And they ask him here at this point, what sign do you show us? And how many signs has John recorded? Just the one so far. But he's going to tell us before this story's over, why this is brought up. Because he was doing other signs. So they ask him, what sign do you do? And they'll ask Jesus, and again, Matthew particularly, makes a point of bringing this up, of what sign uh, is it uh, that you will show us? And so Jesus did a lot of signs, and they're asking for one here. Now again, John said, uh, uh, you know, when... uh, at the end, uh, he said many other signs uh, Jesus did. And then also in John 6, 29, I mentioned Matthew. Uh, Matthew said they asked for a sign. John 6, 29, Jesus said, it's the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. And they said, well, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and we may believe? So this what sign, uh, what, what miracle are you going to do to prove to us? So you need to prove to us that this is uh, uh, an act of God here. You need to prove to us that you have the ability and the right uh, to do this. Now, they're not asking so they could be persuaded, right? These are not persuadable people. Uh, we will find that to the persuadable, uh, to those uh, who are interested in spiritual things, uh, those who have some uh, trust or could at least be trusting, Jesus will give an abundance of signs, But to these guys, he said, I'm not doing one for you. You want to see what I can do? Look at what I just did. I just ran your corrupt people out of here. That's what I did. But I'm not working a miracle for you. So uh, they demand a sign. He said, okay, I'll give you one. And to the people who demand a sign, he always ends up giving them one in the future that they won't like. That's what he says is coming. You're going to get one you won't like. And you know what? When he was raised, guess what happened? They didn't like it. So he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll build it up. And so this is one of the ones that becomes clear in hindsight what he meant. The uh, Jews did not understand it at the time. 
Uh, the Jews said, well, it took 46 years to build the temple. Uh, Herod's great renovations uh, was a long-term project. You thought it took a long time to build Kellogg. I don't know, what are they, 35, 38 years now on, on East and West Kellogg? But I don't know if they're 46 yet. But 46 years, they've been working on this place. And he said, you'll raise it in three days. But he was speaking of his body as the temple, the temple of his body. All right, so they are claiming he is doing destructive things. They're claiming he's doing untoward things. Who is going to do destructive and untoward things? They are. And Jesus, just like right here, what he just did now, who is going to fix their mess? Jesus is. So when they corrupt the temple, who cleans it up? Jesus. When they reject the Messiah and they try to destroy the one who would save all Israel, who fixes that? Jesus does. And he comes back from the dead. And so as he tries to do some restoration to the physical temple, they object because they're the corruptors. They're eventually going to destroy, try and destroy the great temple. They're going to try and destroy the Messiah himself. And he's going to fix that too. Now his disciples then, his disciples understood that three years from now. Because this is the first Passover. It'll be the fourth one where he's buried, killed, buried, and raised three years from now uh, to the day almost that they'll remember and they'll understand. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scriptures and the words which Jesus has spoken. So it took three years for them to understand what was meant. Now that's fine, because did Jesus intend for it to all be understood that day? No. So that's why I say earlier, I think the zeal part they saw, and they realized there's a, there's a scripture right for this. We got that. But then, and actually, when you think about the zeal for the things of God destroying, the temp, uh, destroying Jesus, that takes on new meaning, doesn't it? Because why is he killed? Because it's, he's consumed by his passion for the things of God. But then they get this. So they're going to get this on the day that Jesus is raised. Now, we find, and this is why I think the Jews were asking already for a sign. We find this closed out in verses 23 to 5. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, so the Passover was a Saturday, Sabbath to Sabbath, so eight-day feast, many believed in his name observing the signs that he was doing. So he was doing a bunch of other miracles. What, what did the leaders down at the temple want? They wanted him to come and do a miracle for them, right? He's been doing them evidently all over town. He's been doing them for all these people who've come to the feast. Why are you out there with the people? Why don't you come in here and do one for us? They asked for a sign, that the others are being shown. And I think they're probably really frustrated that he's going out and about with the town and the people, but he's not coming and submitting to them. You know, what do you think their conception of, if they thought about it, if they thought about this, if the Messiah comes, well, I get to be the high priest, what would the Messiah do? Why wouldn't he come in, present his divine credentials, and we would work together? After all, I'm the high priest. I'm the representative of the people of God. I, I'm in charge of the great temple. 
And so Jesus does not go through those corrupt authorities because of their callousness, because of their corruption, because of their unbelief, because he knows how bad they are. We'll find out over the course of the Gospels just how bad they are by their actions. But how did Jesus know that from the first time he shows up? Oh, he knows what's in people's hearts before he shows up. Jesus, on his part, verse 24, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so did he need somebody to warn him about the corruption down there in the high priestly house? Did he need somebody to warn him about the evil that's going on in the temple? No. He knew before he got there. And so how did he deal with them? He ran out their flunkies. And he chastised their corruption. And he never did come and submit to the priest, did he? He never did come and check in with them. Uh, I started off with a social media meme. I have to wonder if maybe it wouldn't have been a place uh, for them to consider another one. There's that one where the guy's in a Nazi uniform and he's got a death skull on his hat and he goes, are we the baddies? Yeah, you're the baddies. Did, they, did these priests, did these corrupt guys uh, who had made the a house of God into a robber's den, did they ever ask, are we the baddies? Are we wrong here? Doesn't seem like it ever bothered most of them. Now, the few people, now the next one will be Nicodemus. Are there a few people, some of the uh, regular run-of-the-mill priests, uh, even maybe some of the Pharisees, important Pharisees even, did some of them consider? Yeah, some of them did. But this priestly class down there? No, they never did. Now Jesus, he doesn't need anybody to warn uh, him about them, and he doesn't need to go get his you know, Messiah credential stamped by them and, and get the official uh, you know, temple authority seal of approval. He just goes after what's wrong. He goes after these exploiters. He goes after these corrupt people. And he puts himself against this corrupt religious establishment. And as he does that, the people, the ones out there on the outskirts, the ones out there uh, who come in to worship God as best they can, uh, to overpay for their sacrifices, to get cheated by these guys, but Jesus is out there receiving them and doing miracles among them, what do they do? The text says they believed. And isn't that why John tells us this story and all the stories? So that we can believe. So John leads us to believe as Jesus was leading these other folks to believe. And so we just ask ourselves each time as we close, do we believe as John wants us to? as his Holy Spirit guided her uh, to faith is directing us? And does it change our lives? Has contact with Jesus changed these other people's lives? Do we believe as they did? And maybe one more parting question. If today Jesus showed up to the place that was his holy temple, which you follow the rest of the New Testament, that is the body of believers known as the church, if Jesus today showed up among his church and his people, would there be occasion for him to set up a scourge of cords and run a few folks or a few things out? And where would we be if he did? Would we be the ones running away from the cord? 
Or would we be the ones standing by with our mouth agape going, I can't believe he did that. Would we be ones that are going, man, I'm glad he, somebody finally got rid of that. Uh, or would we be there helping him going, I've been saying about this all along. And so if he came back today, what would he run out of his church? And where would we stand in regard to those things? So the authority and the prophecy of Jesus, along with the exploitation of the people and Jesus' passion for purity. And I got to say that to me is a pretty exciting story hidden by a pretty mundane title, First Temple Cleansing. There was a lot there. Do we believe it? Well, that will close. Ask this morning if you need to come to the invitation, believing in Jesus so that you might uh, confess him, uh, dedicate your life to being one of his disciples and John wants and intends for you to be. If you need to come to him confessing him or you need to come back repenting of sin, we offer the invitations we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.